Poetry night lives in the future. Poetry is, you know. Poetry, but what we do. Poetry is, you know. Poetry, but what we do. Poetry is, you know. Poetry night rings through. I'm going to let her tell you the rest about her through her words. Please welcome warmly to the stage our now local Natalie Fadak. I'm good. <laughs> so, um, this is exciting. Uh, this is only the second time I've ever read poems in front of people, and the first time I've done it by myself. As uh, she was mentioning earlier, Erica Reed is my poetry partner, and we do the t poem sort together, and we type on typewriters, and the poems are for other people. So the poems that I'm reading tonight are poems about my life, and that's weird and very frightening. So um, for those of you who are at the poem store uh, reading we did at the kitchen sessions, very different <laughs> what's about to happen here. I think if you want me to talk about Disney World, I would say that this here is like a new ride opening at Disney World and you're all like the test dummies. We're going to see if it's, if it's, <laughs> if it's going to be open for the kids or not. And it looks like you're all about this tall to ride. So you're good to go. Um, so we're going to start off with, uh, some normal poems, I guess. And then, uh, I have a script, a little short screenplay I brought in that's just fun and I would like to share. So we'll do that. Um, the first poem I'm going to read is called Dead in Beings. I think actually the first four poems, yeah, the first four poems I kind of wrote in a, within a few days on the Olympic Peninsula a few weeks ago. And I had never been out there before, and it was stunning. And uh, each of these has their own little piece of, of wonder. So the first one is called Deadened Beings. The first one was a woman grown. The second was a whale. The third one now is freshly dead, flies tromp at rotting tail. A lady seal, her teats declare, as they fester in the sun. Her brown eyes mush, her bellies gush, her smile pus-blood gums. I found a lot of deadened beings on solitary walks, and always wished for just one thing, that they had breath to talk. How came you here, my lady seal? What drove you blank to bay? I linger, listen, lick my lips, and watch the seal decay. Thank you. It's going to get more awkward from here, folks. Hang on. Um, so this next one, I was on Cape Flattery, and um, I had been talking with someone about domestic violence right before, and um, going to the Cape and seeing these really aggressive waves hit the shore kind of brought this poem out. It's called A Domestic Scene. If you look really close, you can trace the path of each swell as she hauls herself towards land's embrace. Except land doesn't hug. Land gives sedimentary slaps. Bashes swell apart, like beer bottles on linoleum. Doesn't understand what swell wants, or why swell keeps coming back again, again, again. After all those slaps, 
maybe Swell wants it, likes it. When tourists stand ashore aghast, poor waves being slammed around by stubborn, brutish cliffs, Swell likes knowing others know land's the bad guy. But what if someday land hugged back? Swell would slap herself in shock. <laughs> this one is called Tasting Salt, also uh, inspired by the Olympic Peninsula. When I am at war with myself, I walk to the sea and dive into the fray, where a battlefield of bull kelp lies wasted in the current, oozing kelp ball blood into the marbled blue, where chill water drips from muscled rocks like icicles in springtime melt. The winter sea on naked skin calls my blood cells into ranks, and they batter my cheeks, feet, hands until they are cramp-numbed red. Above me, cormorants wander waver wobble and poop with reckless abandon, splattering sea rocks like a Jackson Pollock air raid. <laughs> That's a humorous line. All right. Um, beyond the Kelpie corpses and my still-breathing one, aquatic avalanches claw at an island lighthouse, a swath of briny troops poised to topple Troy. I cheer them on as salt water trickles down my rasping throat, offering to replace my care-torn breath with blood-rind stew, to float me away from landlocked troubles and into the Selkie's den, where I may rest with others who drown on dry land. Can everybody hear me when I talk like this? I'm going to actually not use this delightful microphone. If I can talk loud enough. Is this loud enough? Okay. Understood. <laughs> gotcha. I think I'm just going to actually lower it so that I'm not like, yeah. <laughs> Damn it, Max. Um, so this la this is the last one from the Olympic Peninsula trip. And this was um, my first time visiting a casino and the Quinault tribe. Um, and I was on this trip with a woman who does educational practices and programs with the tribes all across Washington. So when she goes to these different places, she usually stays at a hotel or resort, whatever the tribe has. And I have a lot of mixed feelings about, uh, well, not mixed feelings, very strong feelings about how white people have treated um, this land and the people who are here before us. And the casino really riled me up. And I actually was so uncomfortable being there that I went downstairs as pretended to be British because I was like, I, could, I can't be myself here because this is not who I am. But I went as a British person was able to ask, so why are you people actually considering Trump? I don't understand. Interesting, interesting answers. Um, but anyway, this poem is called The White Man's Sin. I'm the man in red. Come play till you're dead. Under smoke and choke air on the land we tread. Change for chips, please tip. Roll dice, roll again. You could win, win, win. It's the white man's sin. Let us treat you too, native flair, native fare. Wash your sheets, shine your shoes, pour a drink for your cares. And forget where you sit, where you've hit, where you've shit. On the culture we've knit, all those pits you have met. From your books, from your tales, killed our kids, killed our whales. Took our lands, dressed our man in all in red, one to dread. Put him there by the bar, gave him drinks, pulled apart who he was, who we are, whiskey arrows through the heart. Pardon me, I've, I've gone far. Bring it back. Fresh cigar? Come on in, you could win. Let the roulette spin and dive back in to the white man's sin. That's the closest thing I have to a slam poem, I think. <laughs> um, this next poem, this is where we get into the like, Oh, I'm soul-searching clearly through writing now, which is a new experience. Um, 
This is called Childhood Games, and it's about my relationship with my sister. Well, I've never, I've never written about this before this week. Wow. Um, so Childhood Games. My sister cheated at every game we ever played. Or she claimed that I cheated and quit. When we played cards at the airport, our parents prayed that vacation would make us not ourselves. That another country's air would give us breath for kinder words. But the cards would be on the floor before the flight boarded, and I'd watch my mother's eyes retreat into a private interrogation room, where she'd ask herself how both these horrid children could be hers. At home, Twister was the game for our fingers, to see who could pinch the hardest, who could draw blood first. During hide-and-seek, she found everything else more interesting than finding me. The game of life was simply our life, compressed into tiny pink torsos, competing over family, careers, houses, and who got to spin the wheel first. I bent the corner of the Tudor house so I could find it every time. That way, I could pretend I was in medieval London when she dumped all seven, seven children out of my plastic green car. Cranium, Yahtzee, Battleship, no matter what we played, we both lost. But never not once did we play Operation. We didn't have it at our house despite all those years when I was going to be a neurosurgeon or an orthopedic surgeon or some other kind of surgeon where you got to cut people open and take out all the bad parts and leave nothing but the good. There was no point in buying it, though. By middle school, I realized I would never be able to play games with my sister. She'd always be too busy playing games with me. Her monopoly was friends. She had many. I had none. She got to pass go and collect $200 every time she reminded me how lonely I was which was at least once every Friday night when I was debating which Lord of the Rings DVD to watch when she was dressing to go out. Her trivial pursuits consisted of boys and parties and perfume and makeup, and she loved to remind me how much she knew about each of these categories as I struggled to read the rules. Often she'd go fishing for my insecurities and use them to bait me into a scrabbled fight. Fashionless, friendless, pointless. She almost always got a nibble. It got to be that my favorite game was counting how many weeks remained until she left for college. The first edition came with 127 weeks, and I twirled them all between my fingers as I set them on the board. Those 127 weeks came and passed, and then a few hundred more. And now there are almost as many weeks between us as miles. I have friends now, friends who love games, who don't cheat, who don't quit. But now the one game my sister and I never played is the one I want to play the most operation, but only with her, because I need her help pulling out all the festering game pieces that have been lodged inside me for so long. No hand but hers can reach into my past and unclog the putrid piles of plastic that formed when she convinced me that I wasn't worth playing with. I would risk that startling buzz, that electric shock of her palm scraping my heartstrings if it meant that we could giggle together as friends when the tweezers hauled out another jagged shard of sisterhood. So this next poem is a nice follow-up to that, because um, it's about a friend of mine who has kind of become my sister, more than that real sister of mine ever was. And this is called, uh, actually I'm going to preface it a little bit more, I had a dream uh, fairly recently, and it was like a triple layer dream, and I was waking up from one of those dreams into what I thought was real life, but I was frozen, but I could see this friend, my sister friend, um, trying to get me out of sleep, but it looked like I was dead. And from this, like, sleeping death, I could see her, like, where, what's happening? And I couldn't do anything because I was frozen. And it was, uh, that's what this poem came out of. It's called Dreaming of Sister Love. I felt your sister hand shake my slumber-slumped shoulder, 
coaxing me from the beasts and shadows of infinite dreamscape and into reality and morning light. But sleep, ooh, that seductress, filled my muscles with quickcrete, caught me, skinned me until my flesh was not my own and I could not wake. My body paralyzed, my spirit fighting to get back to you. I felt your sister shape rush over to mine, your sister hands staying my reckless jolts, your sister eyes scanning for me through sister tears, whose bitter drops found nothing but my dream-hollowed body. Through the silks of sleep, I watched your cheeks burst red with the pain of sister love. Like the furies, I fought to spare you my loss, to sit up beside you with a sleep drool smile and comment on the weather or the sunrise or anything to make you sleep sleep drool smile too. I ripped to her clawed at sleep straitjacket, thrashing and bucking until the bindings broke and I rolled out of sleep to hold you and heal you and promise that I would never sleep again if my dreams hurt you as much as they hurt me. But I woke, miles away from you, where it was clear sleep had trapped me in myself so I wouldn't have to wake up to a morning with you gone. That was a shitty dream, let me tell you that. Um, (laughs) Yeah, that one shook me for a while. Hmm? Yeah, it was after the third time, I wasn't sure. But then it was real, I think. Um, so again, with the uh, exhumation of my soul here, um, this is a poem about a friend of mine. I just finished writing this today. Um, who we stopped being friends really abruptly when we were about thirteen, and I never knew why until just recently. And so um, this is about that, and it's called disgraced. I never knew myself as sin. I never knew why we grew apart. I never knew what you had to confess. Grace, to bear in name the favor of God on every school paper, every birthday card, and every soccer ball. To bear in heart the fear of damnation, eternal love, or eternal hell every time we met. Grace, to be at birth one whose calling meant nothing less than godliness. Looking back, We were doomed from the start. Friends from two years old, two short-haired tomboys who judged a day by the number of bruises on our limber frames, who dreamt side by side every weekend after soccer and too many video games as your oak tree traced its moonbeam shadow across the rec room floor. Remember, we slept wrapped together beneath that lumpy down blanket that was never really big enough for both of us. Grace, to think our slumber parties tortured you once our nipples rose tortures me. How many times did Oak Shadow circle the room as the devil crept through an open window and laid his hands over my sleep-soft body, tempting you to crawl closer, open your mouth wider, loosen your clothes faster, convert your faith sinner? Grace, I imagine your confessions, how the punctured screen must have begged for the sins in your hell-torn heart, how your voice must have quivered the first time you told a priest who you dreamt about at night what that priest must have said to scare you into damning me. When you chose heaven over friendship, I thought you had actually gone there. On those weekend evenings when we should have been counting bruises, I scrolled through obituaries, checked the news, called your house, called again, cried out voicemail after voicemail, searching, even bent my agnostic knees and folded my heathen hands and asked your God to give you back. But grace was what neither of us needed. I heard you have a partner now, 
that your parents have accepted you, even if God hasn't. That those turbulent years passed you by like the books in the Bible, slow and confusing. And you came out like Noah from the whale. Maybe someday we'll meet again and you can absolve me for being your original sin. And I can go forth after so many years of brimstone and be baptized a believer in friendship. Um, so this is a script that I wrote on a whim, um, on a plane, like at midnight when I was coming back from a film shoot with my film partner here, Max. And, um, we actually have decided recently that we're going to try and turn it into a children's book, which will be fun. So it's still in its screenplay format, but, um, the story will be the same. It's like a children's book for adults. So, uh, it's called Luna. It starts exterior wolf's den twilight. The sun sets over a rolling countryside, and light shines out from the windows of a little home built into a hillside. Oh, this would be like claymation if it was a video, by the way. Um, Kit. I am the heart. My two big ventricles... Ventricles? Ventricles pump blood through the body. On the phone, the dad. I know, I know, I got it, Jerry. You need the briefs tomorrow. Inside the den. Continued. Nip, a middle-aged wolf wearing slacks, a button-up, and a tie, chats on the phone while chopping tomatoes for his spring salad. Behind him, Luna, a middle-aged wolf wearing a casual blouse and blue jeans, sits at the kitchen table. She rubs away a headache as she stitches together a heart-shaped costume for Kit, a young female pup who paces to and fro rehearsing lines. Nip, but I've been busting my tail over them for the last week, and my kid's got this play tonight, and yelling over the phone cuts him off. I pump blood to the lungs and then deliver oxygen-rich blood to all the, the organs. Organs! Ugh, the mumbled yelling ends. Oh, okay, okay, Jerry, I'll do what I can. Bye. Kit, you might say I am the heart of the cardiovascular family. Cardiovascular. Oh, I'm never going to get it right! Dad sets the salad and a roasted rabbit on the table. Everyone gets nervous on opening night, Squirt. You'll be fine. Oh, I'm going to make a fool out of myself in front of the entire school. Then at least you'll be the cutest fool on stage. Try it on. Luna helps Kit into her heart costume. There, how's that feel? Kit frowns and shrugs. Luna exaggeratedly shrugs back. Oh, just a shrug? Just a shrug for my little mongoose? She tickles Kit, who breaks into a smile. Luna pulls Kit into a hug. You're going to be wonderful. Kit hugs her tightly. And even more wonderful with a still full stomach. Eat up. We leave in 20. Dad pushes a plate with the rabbit's head towards Kit. Thanks, Dad. Let's get that costume off. Kit wiggles out of the costume and dives into her meal. Luna walks off to hang up the costume, but grows faint and leans against the wall. Un, you okay? Mom? I'm, I'm fine. I'm, she lurches as if coughing up a hairball. Sweet maple syrup! What day is it? Luna hunches over and her shoulders shake like they're about popping out of her sockets. Nip runs to the wall calendar. How could we forget? Luna's clothes rip apart as she grows to a monstrous size. Dad rushes to a medicine cabinet only to find that the desired pill bottle is empty. I thought you were getting the refill. Son of a chipmunk. Dad looks out, dad looks out the window at the rising full moon and then at Luna, who is now a butt naked human, much, much too large for the room. Drool dribbles from her open mouth. Kit pushes her head away and hangs her head. 
Nip. Hey, Luna. Hey, it's me, Nip. Your husband. We're gonna go to the fun room. You like that place? Kit, get the bait. Kit slowly walks to the shelf full of knickknacks. Her foot accidentally bumps a chair, and Luna snaps her glare towards Kit and growls. Hey, hey, Luna, over here. Over here, sweet pea. That's right. Look at me. Kit reaches her target, a cell phone, which she lobs at her dad. <laughs> Nip grabs the phone in front of Luna. Oh, what's this? It's so shiny, so many noises and buttons. Ooh. He lures Luna towards an empty closet. That's right, follow the shiny toy. Dad, follow the little lights. Beep, boop, boop, beep. Luna is mesmerized. Oh. That my play. We'll get there, kid. We just have to lock your mom in the closet first. Go get it. Nip chucks the phone into the closet, and Luna darts after it. He slams the door behind her and locks it. Phone beeps waft out from under the door. Ha-ha! We're getting pretty good at that, aren't we, Kit? Kit? Uh, Kit pokes at her dinner absentmindedly. All right, kiddo, it's playtime. I'm not going. What are you talking about? You've been excited about this for weeks. Nick kneels down next to consoles Kit, but she turns away from him. He crawls around to face her. I'll bring the old camcorder so Mom can still see it. Kit turns away, and he crawls around again. Behind them, we see the closet doorknob turning and hear the click of a lock. Sweetie, I wish it was different, too, but we don't get to pick our parents. You picked her. Nip's ears droop. Behind them, we see that Luna has picked the lock. Nip and Kit twirl around at the sound of the front door opening and watch Luna stumble outside. Damn her opposable thumbs! Luna! Luna! <laughs> Nip runs out after her. Kit picks up her heart costume. After a pause, she throws it on the floor. Nip pokes his head back in the door. Get your costume! We gotta go! He runs off, only to pop back in. And a jacket! He runs off. And the puzzle! And the keys! He, Kit grabs her costume, a jacket, and her keys. Outside the wolf den, continuous. Kit slams the door and shuffles to the car. A full moon hangs low in the sky and illuminates Luna's pale butt as Nip calls after, Luna! In the car, night. Nip frantically looks out the window as he drives, looking for Luna. All right, squirt, I'm going to let you out. Find your mom, get her her pills, whiz back here, and then we'll both be here to watch her play. Yay! Kit, Kit hops out of the car. Nip, see you in a jiffy. Nip peels away. Dad, my costume! Arr! The scar car screeches and backs up. He checks the costume at her through the window. Sorry, kiddo, break a leg! He drives off. Kit walks away, dragging her costume. Outside of a farm, a flock of hens cluck inside their coop. Luna stares at them through the chicken wire. She tries to grab one, but the wire keeps her out. She claws at him, at it, then tries to bite it. She whines and snarls, frustrated, until she sees a latch. She uses her strange fingers to unclip the latch and the coop door swings open. She grabs a startled chicken and devours it. <laughs> Nearby the farm, Kit Nip tiptoes through a cornfield, searching for clues. He hears the shriek of a dying chicken and chases after the sound. Luna! Back at the chicken coop, Luna's face is covered in feathers and blood as she reaches for another chicken. Behind her, a light turns on in the farmhouse, and a farmer pops his head out the window. Who in the hell's out there? Luna runs away. The farmer pops back inside to grab his gun. Nip runs up to the coop to find nothing but the feathers and blood. Look at this mess. Well, since it's open. As he reaches his paw into the coop, the farmer pops back out of the window with a rifle and shoots at Nip. The shot blasts off part of the coop, and Nip books it. You rascally wolves, I'll get you yet. 
Inside the school dressing room, <laughs> Kit puts on her heart costume, surrounded by other woodland creatures in anatomical garb. She looks into a mirror and sighs. Exterior woods, a campfire. Luna stumbles through brambles and bushes until she bursts into a, stop laughing, into a small clearing where a half a dozen hippies are seated around a fire. Their leader, Sap, wearing a bedraggled vest and floral skirt, complete with dreadlocks, raises his arms in greeting. Welcome, fellow traveler! The universe has brought you here to join us in our journey. Be seated, friend. And let the celestial energy of this full moon night embrace you and your sorrows. Luna sits down beside him like a dog, curious. The woman next to her holds out a hennaed hand. I'm Lycan. It's a pleasure to meet you. Luna licks Lycan's hand, confused. We were just opening up our shockers to the beauty of this night when you came along. Please join us. The group passes around a giant blunt. Luna watches Lycan take a drag <laughs> and then mimics what she saw. She coughs wildly and then passes the blunt on to Sap. I admire how comfortable you are with your body. We need more nudists in the world. Luna bites Lycan on the arm, which Luna mistakes, or which Lycan mistakes for affection in her impaired state, and laughs it off. Luna stares at Lycan and drools. Now, friends, it is time for our spirit quest to begin. We must channel our spirit animals to free us from the walls of humanity. Luna begins to howl. Oh, you've done a spirit quest before! <laughs> Sap howls with her, and then the whole group joins in. Luna, confused and howling, grows impatient and devours Sap. The rest of the group flee and run for their lives. In the woods nearby, Nip sniffs a trail of smoke in the air. Marijuana. Ugh, when will these hairless apes learn that stuff's for tea? He hears frenzied screams nearby and darts up. Sweet maple syrup! At the campfire again, Nip arrives at the campfire to find it deserted. He sniffs around for clues and finds the end of the blunt and a broken-off dreadlock. He picks up the blunt. Oh, no. She has the hunger. <laughs> Inside the school auditorium, backstage, Kit peeks out from behind the curtains and watches all the parents finding her, their seats. Hers are nowhere in sight. She pulls the curtains closed. Inside a grocery store, continuous, the door flies open as Luna rages into the store. Other customers gasp at her nudity, covering their mouths and their children's eyes. Luna finds the frozen foods aisle and devours tub after tub of ice cream. Inside a car, continuous, Nip zooms along, his eyes locked on the road ahead. Come on, baby, please be there, please be there. Back at the country grocery store, Nip zips into the parking lot and parks his small wolf-sized car next to a larger human-sized car. He runs towards the store and then turns back and grabs Kit's jacket out of the car. He rushes towards the store and turns back to lock the door. Inside the grocery store, Luna lies gorged and semi-unconscious in the frozen foods aisle, surrounded by curious onlookers. A grocery store manager pokes her with a mop. Ma'am, ma'am, I'm going to have to ask you to leave. Nip rushes into the store on all fours and growls at the onlookers surrounding his, his wife. Various onlookers, wolf, run, ah! They all flee at the sight of him, and he rushes to Luna. Luna, Luna, honey, it's Nip. Luna spits up ice cream. Jeez, ice cream works as well as the meds. Nip. Oh, hey, that's my girl. That's my Luna. Oh, Kit. Way ahead of you, sweet pea. He sits up and wraps the jacket around her. She vomits up a bunch of ice cream and sap the hippie. Animal control officers rush in with dart guns and nets. There, buy the ice cream! Sweet maple syrup! 
Nip hoists Luna onto his back and rushes the cops, leaping over them and bolting out the door. Sap waves goodbye to Luna. Best spirit quest ever! <laughs> he howls after them. Inside the school auditorium, backstage, Kit stands in line waiting for her turn on stage. A nervous skunk in a nose costume is performing their monologue. Skunk nose. I have sp special receptors in my membranes that alert the brain about new and exciting smells. The nervous skunk accidentally releases their scent glands, much to the audience's horror. <laughs> Kit peeks behind the curtain for her parents again. She spots two empty seats where they should be. Inside the car, continuous, Nip speeds along, attempting to put sunglasses and a hat on Luna as he drives. Inside the auditorium, backstage, Kit is next in line to go on stage. She takes one last look into the audience and finds the two same empty seats. She hangs her head. In the school parking lot, Nip screeches to a halt and runs to pull Luna out of the car. He carries her inside on his back. On the auditorium, Kit shuffles onto the stage. In the back, Nip and Luna enter the theater. On stage, Kit speaks her lines to her feet. I am the heart. My two big ventricles pump blood through the body. A cough from backstage pulls her attention. Her teacher, a prim and proper porcupine, sits, signs for her to lift her chin and project. Kit lifts her chin and looks out into the crowd to find her mom and dad settling into their seats. Kit's face lights up. Nip gives her a thumbs up and helps Luna configure her human's hand into a thumb up. I am the heart. My two big ventricles pump blood through the body. I pump blood to the lungs and then deliver oxygen-rich blood to all the organs. Nip is beaming with pride. Luna's smile pokes out from behind her sunglasses and hat. You might say, I am the heart of this family. Her teacher coughs. <clears throat> cardiovascular family. Oh, cardiovascular family. The audience applauds, but none louder than her dad. Luna smiles and applauds awkwardly. Kit takes a bow and skips off stage. Outside of the wolf den later at night, the car doors close and the family walks towards their home. Nip carries an ecstatic Kit in his arms, and Kit holds Luna's hand. And then Finley Fox stepped on his own tail, and he almost knocked over the microphone, which made Becky Beaver laugh so hard that she bit her own tongue with her giant teeth, and then she was bleeding everywhere, and then Miss Quill had to stop the play to get gauze. I remember, Kit. We were there. Kit looks at her mom and smiles. I know. They go inside, and the full moon hangs high above the countryside. Thank you for having me. Thank <laughs> you.